Well, most of you know well that my family is preparing for a rapidly approaching special arrival. And our, our third son is due to be born on or around Valentine's Day, Lord willing. So it's coming up fast, and we're in the final stages of preparing for his arrival into the world of breathing oxygen. So this past week, we were busy getting all kinds of things ready. We got the baby's room cleaned out, a crib set up. We sorted hundreds of items of baby clothes and got diapers and cleaning supplies situated and drug our, dug our baby car seat out as well as a, the bathtub and the bassinet and the bottles. And soon we'll be packing our bags for the hospital, getting all ready. It's a lot of work to get ready for another little human being to enter our world. Did you know that if you're a follower of Jesus, you are also awaiting a special arrival? And not just an arrival of a little helpless baby, but the arrival of a glorious conquering king. Ready or not, Jesus is coming again. And he's coming to earth one day, and that will be either to our joy or our doom. But the question I want us to ponder today is, are we prepared for his arrival? Are we ready to meet him face to face? Are we in the process of getting prepared? Okay, it's a much more serious question than asking if we're getting ready and prepared for a baby to arrive. Are we prepared for Jesus to come back? To press this a step further, the Bible says that the days surrounding Jesus' return will not be easy at all. Are we prepared for those days? Are we ready for the future, frightening though it may be sometimes? Practically speaking, what does it look like to be ready for the future? How can we be prepared? The passage we're going to read today from God's Word, I believe, answers these questions. Okay? We're going to be resuming our journey through the Gospel of Luke, studying the life of Jesus. So I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 21. Luke 21, in the home stretch of Luke. Been doing it for a while now. We're coming towards the end. Luke chapter 21 will be in verse 5. If you're using one of the pew Bibles from in front of you, this is on page 880. 880. Okay, several times already in Luke, as we've gone through this, we've seen Jesus address his future return to earth. He's already talked about this a number of times. But if you thought that we'd already seen everything he has to say, think again. Okay, today we're actually going to be looking at the longest passage we've looked at in one sitting. It's almost an entire chapter all of which Jesus uses to talk about the future, what's coming. Okay, so before we jump into this, though, impressive passage, let's just pray, okay? Would you please pray with me for God's help as we look into these pages together? Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we pray for your guidance, for your wisdom, for your grace, for your truth. We need you, God. We need your truth. And so we pray that your spirit would teach it to us this morning that the words I say would not be mine, but yours, that I would disappear and that you would appear as we read these words, God. We pray that you would come forth, shine forth clearer than anything this morning. And may we leave changed, every one of us. 
for what we see. In Jesus' name, amen. The Jewish temple in Jerusalem was an incredibly beautiful building in Jesus' day. Amazing building, amazing architecture. The Jewish historian Josephus describes the temple this way. It says, The whole of the outer works of the temple was in the highest degree worthy of admiration, for it was completely covered with gold plates, which when the sun was shining on them, glittered so dazzlingly that they blinded the eyes of the beholders, not less than when one gazed at the sun's rays themselves. And on the other sides, where there was no gold, the blocks of marble were of such a pure white, they looked like a mountain of snow. Now, why do I tell you this? Because this is the scene that Jesus found himself in, in Luke chapter 19 to 21. He was at the temple, taught daily in the temple, in the days, the final days leading up to the cross. And now, most people in Israel only saw the temple once a year at most, when they pilgrimaged to Jerusalem, if not far less frequently. And every year, it seemed improvements were being made to the temple. Every time it looked more beautiful, more impressive, more glorious, new jewels, new decorations, new structures were added every year. And by Jesus' time, this temple had been under construction for over 50 years. Incredible building being built. Now, needless to say, the temple had had this tendency to enrapture people captivate them, fascinate them. They'd just be staring. And we're going to see this in verse 5 here. Luke chapter 21, verse 5. It says, While some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. So people around Jesus kept, just kept staring up in awe at this building, marveling and pointing and gaping and admiring it. But when Jesus heard them appreciating the temple, he spoke up. And it's quite the killjoy. Verse 5, While some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, Jesus said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Talk about being a bearer of bad news. Imagine if we were down at the Parliament Hill and we were getting this tour of Parliament buildings, admiring the beautiful architecture, and then I just blurted out, hey, hey, one day, all of this, you're going to see it all crumble and burn. Okay, Debbie Downer. (laughs) But the fact is, Jesus was telling the cold, hard truth. All of this would come true. About 30 years later, after Jesus, in AD 70, after the Jews revolted against Rome, really stupidly so, Roman armies would march upon Jerusalem. And they'd surround Jerusalem. And after a long, severe, brutal siege, the Romans took the city and demolished it. Conservative estimates say that half a million people died. That's conservative estimates, with many more enslaved. And just like Jesus had said, the Romans actually tore down the temple stone by stone. So though this prophecy would have sounded shocking and 
unrealistic in Jesus' day, it happened. Just as he said. Now, if if you were told that a a big disaster was going to strike somewhere, a certain location, what's the first question you'd ask, if you could? When? Right? When is this going to happen? Why? So you can make sure you're as far away as possible, right? When it actually goes down. You don't want to be there. And this is how the disciples respond to Jesus' bleak prophecy. Read verse 7. It says, And they asked him, speaking of the disciples, they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Jesus' answer to them takes up most of the rest of this chapter. But first I'm going to warn you before we read any further. The way that Jesus answers here can be fairly confusing. Because in these verses, Jesus talks about both a near future and a far future at the same time. He clearly discusses the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. He prophesies about it. But he also clearly discusses his coming return to earth after he would leave and when he'd come back, which is yet to happen, as we all know. So sometimes in this passage, it seems as though he jumps back and forth and back and forth between the two. We might wonder, why does he do this? Why does he make it confusing like this? And Philip Ryken, a scholar, answers this way. He says his answer addresses both the more immediate question of the destruction of the temple and the bigger question of the end of the world. This dual perspective was necessary because what Jesus said about the temple made people think about the final judgment. And Jesus wanted to put both events into their proper perspective. And by the way, it wasn't strange for Jesus to talk about these two separate events this way at all. This is, in fact, this is the way that many biblical prophecies worked, or apocalyptic sayings worked. They often had double meanings, a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. We see this time and time again in, in Scripture, especially even with the prophecies of Christmas. There's a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. But again and again, we see this in prophecy. It's often like we're looking through a spyglass, okay? You know what spyglass is, or maybe... A, a camera with a zoom feature. Okay? We zoom in and we see the specific history of a prophecy. And then we zoom out to see the broad backdrop of all of the future. That's how prophecy often works. And this is certainly the case with this passage, with this teaching from Jesus. It's like he starts out zoomed in on Jerusalem specific history, and then he zooms out to the much broader picture of God's final judgment. So, though his words were originally meant for his disciples, they still very much translate and apply to us today, as things are yet to come. Okay? Now, whether or not people admit it, most people are afraid of the future. They have fears of it. You probably have some fears of the future. And and if they're not afraid, they're probably just suppressing their fears. We fret about job security or financial loss, market crashes. We fret about disease outbreaks, natural disasters. 
We worry about sickness or pain or suffering, either for us or for our loved ones. We're nervous about our national security as a, a, as a country or for, about terrorism or persecution. Most people are afraid of death in some way. There are many reasons that we fear the future. And then we read the Bible, and sometimes it seems to give us even more reasons to be afraid. Is it not? The descriptions of future events in the end times can seem pretty chilling. I'm sure that Jesus' words here would have sounded scary to the disciples in Luke 21. But listen carefully to what Jesus tells them as he answers their question. Okay, They ask, verse 7, Teacher, when will these things be? What will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Verse 8. And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Here we're going to see the first of several principles that we should take to heart today as we look forward to our future. And that is, first of all, we must face a fraudulent and fearful future by being careful and courageous. We must face a fraudulent and fearful future by being careful and courageous. Jesus told his followers two things not to do here in these verses. Don't be led astray. And don't be terrified. Did you see that? Okay, verse 8 said, See that you are not led astray. Don't be led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. So first, verse 8 makes clear that the future would be filled with frauds. Okay? There have been countless counterfeit Christ over the years. And there will always be more. Those who claim to be Christ, or even to be greater than Christ, I am He! That's what He said. There have also been count, uncountable rash predictions about the end times over the years. Whether trying to predict exact dates or other precise details about the end times, there are even many of these predictions on the the shelves of Christian bookstores. The time is at hand. Well, maybe not. Verse 8, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. So when the future is fraudulent, we've got to be extra careful. Really, the word you could really use is extra discerning. Discerning of what is true and what is not. Test everything. See if it lines up with Scripture. If it lines up with truth. Scrutinize and study and examine people's claims. Don't just take their word for it. We must see that we are not led astray. And the best way to do that is by knowing the truth well. Okay? You know how people who are trained to spot counterfeit bills 
are trained, they're not trained to study the counterfeits. They're trained to study the real thing. So they know the fakes when they see them. So know the truth. Be discerning. Jesus also says the future will be filled with fearful events here. He says wars and and tumults or turmoil. And then look at verse 10. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Anyone want to live through that? (laughs) Bloodshed, violence, turmoil, earthquakes, starvation, pandemics, terror. Hi, ay, 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 ay. And yet... Right in the middle of this list, okay, right in the middle of the signs that the end is near, Jesus tells the disciples, do not be terrified. Do not be terrified. When you hear these things, do not be terrified. And we go, what? How? In the the face of these types of things, how could we not be scared? Beginning of World War II in 1939, pastor in the UK, Donald Barnhouse, experienced a harrowing journey across Europe right as the war was beginning. He barely got home, but he got home to give this first sermon after Britain declared war on Germany. And all his people were terrified. Many of them were going off to war, to experience war firsthand. Everyone was scared, and he chose this passage to speak on. And he spoke from this passage, quoted Jesus' words in verse 9. He said, When you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. And then he declared, These are either the words of a madman, or they're the words of God. He was totally right. These signs that Jesus is talking about combine so many of our biggest fears. Pain and loss and suffering, uncertainty, death. But don't be afraid. Do not be terrified. How? I'll tell you how. Look at the reasons Jesus gives us. It says, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place. But the end will not be at once. The end will not be at once. So, these things are not actually the end of the world. That's what he said. These things will not be, the end will not be at once. So, we shouldn't freak out as if they were. They're not the end of the world. They're the signs of the end. They're not the end. But more importantly, look at the first reason. It says, for these things must first take place. In other words, all these things are part of a plan. And guess who's on the other side of that plan? Only a living, sovereign Savior who reigns over heaven and earth. A God who is with us and for us and will come again to us. We're all part of a plan. Therefore, in the face of a fearful future, take courage. We must be courageous. Okay? I ask you today, what fears do you have about the future? And whatever they are, 
Confess them to God now. Okay? Ask His Spirit to build up your courage and face them. Do not be terrified. Without God's help, really, our futures can completely overwhelm us. We need Him. And as Jesus continues here, He brings up another really intimidating aspect of the future. But He also talks about another way for us to face it and another way that God promises to help us through it. Okay, see, it's not just counterfeits and wars and diseases and terrors that await us in the future. Believers will face increasing hostility and oppression against God and his ways. Here's what we're going to see over the next several verses. We must face an oppressive future by being God's witnesses with God's words. We must face an oppressive future by being God's witnesses with God's words. We're going to read a number of verses here, starting in verse 11. So there will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Now, do you think that this ended up being practical advice for Jesus' disciples? For sure. Go read the book of Acts. Okay? And read of the vast persecutions that broke out worldwide against the church. But also read of how the apostles were never without the words that they needed. Never without. This instruction, though, from verse really 12 to 19, is so counterintuitive, the opposite of what's natural for us. When we are oppressed by other people, our first tendency is to either run or hide, or both. Right? But when Jesus tells us when it, that oppression is not an opportunity to wither but instead to witness. It's an opportunity. The times we're persecuted may be the best chances we ever get to share Jesus. Okay, verse 12. But before all this, they'll lay your hands on you, persecute you, delivering you up to synagogues and prisons. You'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. So, as opposition continues to slowly build against us in this world, don't freak out. Okay? Instead, counterintuitive though it is, we can rejoice that God is giving us an opportunity to suffer for him and witness for him. Philip Reichen says, We should not pray for persecutions, which are a great sin against God, but neither should we despair when Christians are under attack, because often that is when the church has its brightest and boldest witness. Now, Christians are 
just beginning to taste very mild persecution here in Canada. Very mild. Nothing like it happens in other countries. But a Christian law school might be prevented from operating. Or Christian lawyers are not necessarily going to get jobs in certain provinces. Or a Christian student is reviled by their peers or a professor for what they believe. The mass media really attacks or belittles our faith in any way they can come up with. That's really the extent of the persecution we're facing. But things can and likely will get much worse. And we need to be ready. We desperately need to be ready. So how do we prepare for persecution like this? Jesus tells us, verse 14, Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. So we prepare, by not, not by readying our verbal responses or physical defenses, we prepare by readying our minds, our mental attitudes. Okay? Settle it in your minds. Make up your mind now. Resolve now. Really, it's an exercise in trust at its core. We decide now to trust God then. Okay? It's important. We decide now to trust God then. And if you notice, there's good reason to trust. Jesus gives a promise here that he'll provide what to say. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. If you think about it, this is quite the remarkable, miraculous promise from God. That God will give us, give us a mouth that is not our own. Wisdom that is far beyond us. God will essentially give us his words to say right when we need them. That's a miracle. And that not one of our adversaries will be able to stand against the words we say. It's like we have to go to court to defend ourselves, but our lawyer sitting right next to us is God himself. And we don't have to worry about what's going to happen. He's got it handled. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. And in case you wonder how any of this is worth it, look at verse 18. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. Now, did you notice that verse 16 said that we could be killed? But verse 18 said, not a hair of your head will perish. How is that possible? Because not even death can truly hurt a follower of Christ. You may lose this short, fragile life we live now. But there's another life. Another life that is superior to this one in every way. Eternal life, glorified life, resurrection life, and life that you can never lose. 
And once we've gone through all this world has to throw at us, not a hair of that life will be touched. Not a hair will be lost. And we'll receive our lives once we endure to the end. In His grace, God will reward us for endurance in the midst of oppression. So take courage. Don't worry about defending yourself when the time comes, and don't give up, because God will make every last insult or pain worth it in the end. By the way, all these things we've been reading about happened leading up to AD 70. There were wars and insurrections, noteworthy earthquakes and the disasters that have gone down in history, major persecutions. But like I said, this doesn't mean that these verses don't apply to us and are still future end times. It just means the first context was for the first disciples and what they were about to face. But when we zoom out, zoom the lens out, see the broader picture, many things easily translate. This even goes... For the most Jerusalem-specific verses, which come next, starting in verse 20. It says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are the days of vengeance, to fulfill all that is written. Alas, For women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, obviously, these verses do not mean the exact same thing for us that they did for the disciples. But they still communicate a broader truth for us, which is this. We must face a vengeful future by being very wary of God's wrath. And we must face a vengeful future by being very wary of God's wrath. Beware his wrath. Now, Jesus predicts a lot of things in this passage that usually frighten us, but shouldn't. He already said, don't be terrified of all these crazy things that are going to happen. But if there's one thing, one thing in this passage that we should be scared of, it's God's wrath. Okay? And that God has wrath does not make him a monster. It just makes him holy and just. Verse 22 said, For these are the days of vengeance. Vengeance, which is only God's prerogative. And verse 23, For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. The collapse of Jerusalem, the fall of Jerusalem, was absolutely an occurrence of God's judgment. Back in Luke 19, and Jesus was weeping over the city. Remember that passage? And he, and he said, The days will come upon you when your enemies will barricade and surround you and hem you in and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. In other words, Jerusalem was facing this future precisely because they were rejecting Jesus. 
And we sometimes struggle with things like this. Okay. I wonder, how is judgment like this deserved? Well, when we do that, we inevitably underestimate our sin and our wickedness. Always underestimate it. And the affront it is to the holiness of God. Every human on earth fully deserves hell for the way we've rebelled against God. Including you. Including me. None of us deserve anything good from God. And yet, He gives. And gives. And gives. He is beyond patient with us. Waiting for us to repent. Sending messenger after messenger to us. Even sending His beloved Son to try to get through to us. And we murdered Him. It's the fall of Jerusalem was tragic. There's no denying that, but it was also totally justified. This was Jerusalem getting what was rightfully coming to them. Now, amazingly, history tells us that when the fall of Jerusalem drew near, Jesus' words actually spared many people. The church had taken Jesus' warnings to heart. And when they saw the first wave of Roman soldiers approaching Jerusalem, many believers, most of the believers in Jerusalem, fled the city and ended up escaping. And the gospel witness of the early church in that area was preserved. Amazing story, if you look it up and read it. But there are days of God's wrath that are yet to come that will be much more widespread. And they will be inescapable. And you won't be able to flee. Read the book of Revelation. Okay, Charles Spurgeon said, Jerusalem's fall was a kind of rehearsal of what is yet to be. The uprolling of the curtain on the great drama of the world's doom. That beautiful city was the very crown of the entire earth because God had dwelt there. It may be compared to the diamond in a ring. The jewel whose setting was the whole world. And when that jewel was destroyed, and God did, as it were, grind it to powder, it was a warning that the ring itself would by and by be crushed and consumed. It's quite the picture he uses, isn't it? It's like the world was a beautiful ring with a precious jewel set in it, and Jerusalem was the diamond in the jewel. But the diamond was crushed which serves as a serious forewarning for the rest of the ring, that it will also be crushed with it. If you are not ready to face God's wrath, I have to warn you today that you should be afraid. But I also want to tell you, and don't miss this, because of Jesus, you don't need to be afraid of God's wrath. 
See, just a couple days after he said these words, Jesus would go to the cross. And as, and as he died on the cross, we believe that he bore the brunt of God's wrath against sin, which means that God's holy justice has been satisfied through the cross. And if we believe in Jesus, there is no wrath left for us to face. Jesus took it all for us. In 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says, We are waiting for God's Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And that's good news. But if you are rejecting Jesus today, I must warn you, be very wary of God's wrath. But if you've accepted him, then there is nothing left for you to fear. Nothing. Got it? In case you're wondering, this passage is not entirely negative and depressing. Because while aspects of the future may seem scary or tough, intimidating, guess what comes after? Glory. Eternity, peace, bliss, heaven come to earth, Jesus. And this is the final main point we're going to see in Jesus' words in this passage. We must face a foreboding future by attentively awaiting Jesus' awesome arrival. We must face a foreboding future by attentively awaiting Jesus' awesome arrival. How should we prepare for the future? Above all else, we need to be anticipating it. Okay? It seems counterintuitive again. But really, we can only face this type of future if there is something to hope for at the end of it. Okay? Only face. In verse 25, Jesus seems to zoom out. From the fall of Jerusalem to the broader end times picture. Now we know this because these next events that he describes didn't happen at the fall of Jerusalem. And we know he zooms out here. And in verse 25 he says, And there will be signs and sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So these signs seem to kick things up a notch or ten notches. Now we're talking cosmic instability on land, at sea, in the heavens, even in the stars. And people's response will be overwhelming fear and foreboding. People fainting with fear and foreboding for what is coming on the earth, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. But then, (laughs) then, verse 27, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Not just glory, great glory. Here's where we can all breathe a sigh of relief. Okay? Jesus is coming again. He will come in power. He says no one will be able to stop him. He will come in glory to reign as king over all the universe forever. And all the terrible hurts and sorrows of our world will be set aright. 
That is the heart of this passage. Not bad news, but gloriously good news. And it's immediately followed up by the beautiful verse 28. Now when, you, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Now these things we talk about are the signs of the end. And straighten up, raise up your heads. Basically means stand tall in your faith. Okay, stand tall, lift your head, don't despair, have confidence, be confident, start anticipating, because your redemption is drawing near. It's coming. It's really, truly coming. Okay, I don't know exactly when it's going to happen, but our redemption is nearer now than ever before. It's nearer now than last week. It's nearer than an hour ago. It's nearer with every passing second. Does this not get you excited? Okay. When these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Hang on to these verses. Okay. When you start getting afraid, when you start getting worried about the future, when you see these things that are scary naturally for us, hold on to this. Straighten up, raise up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. To illustrate his point, Jesus told a brief parable after this. He says, he told them a parable, verse 29. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. So he points to a nearby tree and says, Notice how the leaves are budding? Okay? What does that tell you? It's a sign of spring. And summer is coming. Now, the throes of winter, sometimes that feels like it will never come, doesn't it? Can you wait to see the buds on the leaves? No, I can't. Patience, fellow Ottawans. <laughs> Only three more months, give or take. <laughs> but you know what? The signs of the spring will come. And summer will come. Guaranteed. Spiritually speaking, winter will end one day. And summer will come. The kingdom of God will come in glory. So when you see the signs, get ready. This leads us to possibly the hardest verse to interpret in the entire book of Luke. <laughs> verse 32. It says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And we go, huh? <laughs> Was Jesus saying that he would come back before the disciples died? Does this mean that Jesus was wrong about the timing of his return? No. Jesus wasn't wrong. 
He had perfect foreknowledge of the future. He couldn't be mistaken. Plus, look at history. The early church wasn't thrown off when Jesus didn't come back right away. The big question here, really, is what did Jesus mean by the words, this generation? What do you mean by that? Because if he was referring to the disciples' generation, then he was mistaken a bit. Some guess that this generation refers to an ethnic group or a group with common traits. So like, for example, the Jewish people, this generation of Jewish people will not die away before all this takes place until the end. But I think the best interpretation is actually pretty simple. That this generation refers to the generation living when the end begins. It's very simple, but we don't see that right away. Daryl Box explains, Jesus addresses the disciples as representatives of God's people. So when he speaks of the generation that sees these things, he means the generation that sees the events of the end. When Jesus is saying that the generation that sees the beginning of the end also sees its end. So it's like you're saying, there's going to be signs in the sun and moon and earth and sea. And when this begins, that generation will experience everything else, even to the end. It's going to happen quick. Sometimes we get so distracted by something confusing that we can miss the larger point. Look, we nearly missed verse 33. It says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This verse is a promise. It's a guarantee. And an incredibly strong one at that. Do you know who Jesus was quoting here? God. Okay? This statement was actually a claim of deity because only God's word stands forever. You can look up Isaiah 40, verse 8. This statement was a claim of deity. Jesus claiming to be God. That his words are that trustworthy. Okay? We can absolutely trust him. Even when it seems as though our world is going to hell in a handbasket. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will not pass away. He's got things under control. And his words will never pass away. Jesus concludes with some final instructions to prepare us for the final days. It says in verse 34, But watch yourselves. Lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So, how should we attentively await Jesus' arrival? Two ways in particular. First of all, by evading distractions. Okay, we await Jesus' arrival when we keep ourselves from distractions. And this requires paying attention to how we live. Watching ourselves, like he says here, verse 34. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. This verse basically says... 
Don't get weighed down by getting hammered and hung over. Okay, that's literally what dissipation and drunkenness means. And we wonder, well, how does that fit in with this passage? Everything we've read. Well, it's actually pretty easy. When life gets tough, where do people often run to? Alcohol? Often. Or drugs? Or food? Or anything else by which we can try to drown our sorrows? And Jesus was like, don't try to drown this world's sorrows with substances. Okay? They're a trap. They won't keep you attentive to Christ's coming return. Likewise, it says we can easily get distracted by, from the future by the simple cares of this life. It says, lest your heart be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. These can be much more innocent, right? Family, friends, work, school, church, anything like that. Watch yourselves. Hey, this doesn't mean don't do these things, don't have anything to do with them. Just keep them in the proper focus. Okay? Don't let them distract you from anticipating Christ's arrival or living for eternity. Okay? Remember, we are living for that day, not this day. That day, not this day. Remember that. Second way we see in this passage where to attentively await Jesus' arrival is by praying tirelessly. Okay? We await Jesus' arrival when we go to him in prayer, faithfully, consistently, tirelessly. Now, there's no surprise here in a passage that, if nothing else, reveals our desperate need for Jesus. Right? Verse 36. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. J.C. Ryle describes this as perpetual preparedness. Okay, we're, to, we're told to stay awake at all times. Literally? No. Not literally. Though I dare say many of us could probably sacrifice some sleep for prayer. <laughs> but this is just common biblical language for prayer. Stay alert. Keep watch. Pray. Why pray? Because we need it. We need God. And prayer is how we access his power. Jesus says here we should pray because we need strength. Strength to escape the dangers of the end times. And strength to stand before him. And those are the two things. Okay? Stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Now let me tell you, we will only have strength to face the future if we have Christ. We will only have strength to stand before God and His judgment if we have Christ. Having a righteousness that is not our own being clothed in Christ. We need to pray for this. And if we already have received it, we need to thank God for it. We need to pray that His strength will get us through our own foreboding future. As Rich Mullins sang, so if I stand, let me stand on the promise that you will pull me through. And if I can't, let me fall on the grace that first brought me to you. 
verse 37 and 38 give us a bit of an epilogue here, while also hinting ahead at what it was about to come. It says, And every day Jesus was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Night was coming. The mount called Olivet was coming. And we all know what happened there. In the meantime, Jesus filled his days teaching and loving the people who needed him. But while darkness would have its day, a new sun would rise soon, which would provide hope for all the dark nights yet to come on the horizon. Let's pray. Lord, give us that hope. When we are scared, when we're worried, when we're hurting, when we see others hurting, when we're persecuted, give us hope. May we know that it's all part of your plan. And may we trust you. need you, God. Help us to stay alert, to stay awake, to keep praying, to keep ourselves from distractions. And we anticipate that day when we see your return. We're looking forward to it, God. Come soon. In your name, in Jesus' name.